0: Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. China is a constant presence in Western news. Will there, won't there be war over Taiwan? Is China spying on us through its manufacturers' ubiquitous presence in our digital equipment? Yet, if you're like me, you probably feel that for all the news coverage, you can't quite grasp what the country is the numbers are enormous the economy is vast and from out of nothing the population is vast the military is vast and how do you make sense of the data what is the society like that those numbers represent so i decided to talk to isabel hilton a journalist with half a century of experience engaging with china But before you hear our conversation, a reminder, I depend on the contribution of listeners to keep FRDH podcast going. So please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation. Now, I started by asking Isabel Hilton where she would advise people to begin when creating a framework for understanding contemporary China.
1: I guess I'd probably advise people not to think of China as one huge polity, although it is, of course, one huge polity, 1.3 billion, roughly, people. Not quite the world's biggest uh, country now. India overtook it in in recent months. So India is now the largest population in the world. But of course, within that, you have a huge array of sometimes mutually unintelligible languages, all of which are called Chinese, or some version of Chinese, so-called dialects of Chinese. So if you put someone from Hunan in the room with someone from Guangdong province and get them to talk in their native languages, they don't understand each other. So, you know, in a way, that it's not a parallel with Europe. But if you think of, you know, something the size of Europe and the kind of diversity that exists within it, that exists in China too. And that's masked by this kind of national identity which um, is a relatively recent invention. It's also slightly masked by the fact that some 2,000 years ago, an emperor called Qin Shi Huangdi, uh unified the script. And Chinese writing has has very little phonetic element. There's a sort of basic, you know, grammar that is common, so that if you don't understand what someone's saying, if they write it down for you, you can you can get the hang of it so that created a sense of cultural unity entirely through the writing for those who could read and write and it created a national bureaucracy which you know could keep the thing together as china expanded but it's still misleading i think to think of china as just one culture just one place it's many places many cultures many languages
0: right but the my very brief encounters with China. The the one thing, you, you had mentioned national. It, it seems to me to be a very nationalist place on the surface. And you said this is a recent development.
1: Yes, it, it goes back about a bit more than 100 years now. I mean, if you think, think back to the collapse of the last empire, which was actually a foreign empire, it was an invasion from Manchuria, certainly considered at the time by the Chinese to be foreigners and they maintained a kind of apartheid within the empire. Um, they maintained again their own language. They kept records in both Manchu and Chinese. And now, um, and they expanded the, the, the borders of China. They doubled the size of China because they were a northern steppe people. And like the Mongols, who created a vast but short lived empire, the Manchu did much the same. So that collapsed in uh, 1911, 1912. And China then spent most of the 20th century trying to find a form of governance that would um, accommodate this country, and a form of, of, of words that would unify people who, under the empire, you know were loyal to the emperor, but considered themselves also loyal to their province. So if you'd asked a Chinese in 1890, you know, who was he? where was he from, as it were, he might say that he was um, from the Qing Empire, but he was more likely to say that he was from Hebei or or Qinghai or whatever, you know, a a part of China where he was born, where he drew his identity from. And the thing about empires is that you can have that kind of diversity within empires with the figurehead of the emperor as your glue. But if you take away the figurehead of the emperor, people then, don't know what they're loyal to they don't know what the country is there was no word for china china you know that word is a, is a, is a 20th century invention and so it, it you know they had to recreate a kind of national identity and it was a very bloody and conflicted affair so on the streets of of china in 1919 for example with the may the fourth movement what people were demanding was science and democracy and they tried to build a democratic China. It didn't last very long. No, no one ever really got control of it. The Guomindang, the Nationalist Party and the Communists then fell out in the 20s very bloodily. The Communists retreated um, up to the, to the Loess Plateau after the long march, leaving, leaving the Nationalists essentially to fight the Japanese. Um, and after the defeat of the Japanese, the civil war resumed. And when the communists won that in 1949, they set about imposing a national ideology. And it was, a you know, again, it varied a lot for the first 30 years, um, but it was essentially um, a communist ideology. It was, you know, we are, this is a, a, a different place because, because it is communist and you must be loyal to the party. So whatever your linguistic affiliation, whatever your job, whatever your uh, geographical attachment, the party was what counted. And they set about destroying other loyalties, so destroying other centres of belief, like religion or or civil society, whatever it was, in that first very, very brutal 30 years, which culminated um, with the Cultural Revolution and the death of Mao. So, you know, China as China then in that period became closely identified with the Communist Party. And the Communist Party would argue that it is China and China is it. But it does mask, again, a lot of uh, diversity. Um, the nationalist message, once the communist message was no longer you know, the dominant message, the nationalist message became the, the main message of the Communist Party. And that's why we have this muscular nationalism now. So China defines itself now against the outside. So there are internal enemies, the Uyghur and the and the Tibetans and and people who don't express their loyalty to the party, and there are external enemies, notably the United States. So that's how that's how they hold it together now.
0: Two things. One is, do do you think that there that it's slightly analogous to the historical development in Russia, which had its 70-year period of union of Soviet socialist republics in which the whole world went through its nationalist phase and fought world wars and has reached this kind of, I, I think entropy is actually a pretty good word. I mean, I think it explains our anxieties across a range of things where we don't go to war, at least in the first world, over national questions. We we settle them through trade and and the post-war settlement the u.s and the other victors agreed to but when i think of russia today i think of a longing within russian society for a czar and so putin is probably a lot more popular than we who are upset about the invasion of ukraine give him credit for he probably is without necessarily maintaining stalinist Repressive measures, and I just wonder if it's in an analogous situation in China, where outside the cities in in eighteen ninety five, it was pretty much a peasant culture, and now here they are suddenly in the twenty first century at the height of modernity, with access that grandparents never had to, or great grandparents had to modern life, and so they accept G, the as you know, a kind of emperor figure and that this becomes a source of pride. This is who we are. We have an emperor and he stands for us against the world.
1: That is a very powerful message. And certainly, you know, you have generations who have been raised and educated with that message, essentially since 1989, um, since Tiananmen. And, you know, it, 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 It is very powerful, uh, just as it is in, in Russia. And I think you're right about that. And the choices that people make, or the preferences, I should say, that people express, depend very much on the available choices. And the party has also been very successful in arguing for years that without the party, there is chaos. Before the party, there was chaos. The party imposed order. The party actually brought 30 years of chaos of its own, but we're not allowed to discuss that anymore. The party starved 40 million people to death in the uh, early 60s as a result of the Great Leap Forward. Another 10 million maybe died in the Cultural Revolution. Um, Previous campaigns, the Socialist Education Movement, you know, millions of people died as the party imposed order but that's not that, that that is not discussed in china in china's history books what is discussed is the uh, arrival of the outside world in the essentially the early 19th century and the what mao called semi-colonial phase where you know powerful europeans and americans imposed uh, their will on china so it wasn't actually fully, ever fully colonized, but, but the Qing dynasty didn't want to trade and and the outside powers did want to trade and they forced China to make those concessions um, through violence. And that is what is taught in China um, and has been taught f- pretty much for what, 40 years now, that if China isn't strong, then outside powers will bully China. And that is a strong message. So yes, when Xi Jinping stands up or when these, these movies which depict China, you know, um, seeing off American forces or, you know, kind of Chinese fighter pilots, you know, beating the West and all of that. People do get a surge of national pride and that, you know, that that can't be discounted. But you, you talk about the analogies with Russia. There's another analogy with Russia in the early days, which was that. In the the days of the Soviet Socialist Republics, there was a minorities policy which accommodated all the people inside the Soviet Union who really weren't Russian and didn't consider themselves Russian. And it was a kind of semi-autonomous, self-government kind of theory, which China also had. Um, So when, when the People's Republic was founded, you know, you had ostensibly self-governing regions, provinces, whatever, if if there was a, a large um, number of people who were not Han Chinese. So Tibet, for example, was supposed to be, it's called the Tibet Autonomous Region in, in, in Chinese and Qinghai and so on. Um, now we have, because of Xi Jinping's particular nationalism, we have a kind of assimilationist policy uh, where language rights are being demolished you know children are being separated from parents and sent to state boarding schools educated in chinese in han chinese rather than in their own language and so you've got a very very different approach than you had which you know under i suppose under the party you could consider the party general secretary as the empire ruling over this diverse country as long as it subscribed to one ideology now you have the imposition of a kind of synthetic national culture on people who really uh, you know, didn't speak Chinese, didn't consider themselves Chinese at all. So it's a very different approach.
0: Well, we may get back to um, the ethnic minorities and how they're treated by, by the party stroke national government. But what I want to, to move to now is how this nationalism affects the way people do business. A steady drip, drip, drip of stories about... Huawei, you know, don't buy a Huawei phone because it, somehow everything you do on the Huawei phone goes back to some super server in the middle of a desert in China and they'll know what you're doing and this kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I, I again, I find that the, the news stories are incomplete, that there's something nationalistic in the business, international business competition, which has begun, particularly in this century, between China and the West Particularly the United States, does that nationalism affect the way they, the way people do business?
1: We've seen an evolution of this policy. When when Mao died in 1976, China was on its knees. It barely had enough foreign currency to keep its embassies going. Um, Deng Xiaoping comes back. He launches um, a reform and opening up policy. Uh, the 80s were an extraordinary time of of exploration of the past, of rediscovery of the outside world. It ended, as we know, in Tiananmen, with demands for democracy again, which were crushed. He he relaunched his going out policy in 92 with the Southern Tour. And then you you start this um, three decades of double-digit growth. China joins the WTO. China's open for business, essentially. And that in 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 that ecosystem, all kinds of companies grew up including private companies They still you know had an economy largely dominated by state-owned enterprises certainly in the first 20 years. but then private companies like Huawei uh, sprung up and you know they, they were very good at what they did and they could have they could have emerged as multinational corporations just like any other were it not for, Again, the party policy. So under Xi Jinping, what we've seen is a sort of securitization of everything. So Xi Jinping has passed a whole series of laws relevant to national security, and they're getting tighter. and And these laws, he has reasserted party control over vast parts of the economy, so that any company in China now has to have a party cell, it has to have a party secretary. The party increasingly demands uh, control over um, decision-making. If you don't comply, then you get treated as Jack Ma, was, Alibaba was treated, um, or the way the Didi Chuxing, when it listed on the New York Stock Exchange, without party permission and so on. And all of this in the name of national security. So Xi Jinping's basic argument is that, that the evil foreigner is out to get us, particularly the United States. Everything we do, therefore, is related to national security. Now, there are people inside and indeed outside China who argue that what he's really talking about is party security. It's the right of the party to rule forever. And what you're seeing is a kind of increasing paranoia in the Chinese regime, in which you know everyone is, is seen as an enemy. And one of the consequences of this is that companies like Huawei, which begin as a private sort of private company. Actually, most of their early contracts were, were military contracts, but nevertheless, they operated. dual all, you know, ostensibly as a private company, except that under the national security law, they are obliged to cooperate with, the, with China's national security services, you know, at any time. And it, it therefore becomes very difficult to separate what is, legitimate private enterprise from what is um, a security operation or can be invoked as a security operation at any point. And as time goes on and these security uh, demands become more obvious, then yes, people are very concerned. It wasn't helped by the fact that two PLA officers some 15 years ago wrote a book about the best way to wage war which was that, you know, why wage war militarily when you'd be defeated, when actually you can use trade, commerce, finance, investment, you know, every other theater is available to you. So you think, okay, (laughs) well, clearly this thought (laughs) is around in China. Maybe we should pay a little more attention to it. And when you get to the point where you know, we're looking at something like Huawei and and 5G is, is part of critical national infrastructure everywhere. Uh, it's like allowing China to build and operate nuclear power plants on our national grid, which at one point David Cameron had promised. And you think, well, that's like a 50 year bet on nothing going wrong between us and Beijing or between our closest ally, Washington and Beijing. I'm not sure I would make that bet. Then, of course, the Western economies found they were so deep into the relationship with China that it wasn't very easy to get, you know, to to establish a more autonomous uh, set of relationships. But that's what's going on now. But what's interesting, again, hasn't helped. They've just in the last couple of weeks, there have been raids on all kinds of companies that operate in China doing things like due diligence on for investments. You know, these guys have been, the offices have been raided, people have been arrested. You know, it's just, it's becoming very, very difficult to treat China like a normal trading partner.
0: The, the picture you, you describe, it's in other similar kinds of autocracies. You, this is the prescription for corruption. And certainly that's, uh, to go back to Russia again, This is this defines Putin's Russia. You can do anything you want, but there has to be a kickback up the stairs and then, you know, into the Mediterranean onto a yacht. And and I'm just wondering, is the, the people around Xi Jinping, are they similarly corrupted yet? Or is this just, or is this some kind of genuinely nationalist? Um, that's That's our motivation here. We get to control what, and define what free trade is with China.
1: In, it, since Xi Jinping came to power, he has sent more than a million people to jail for corruption. Um, and, <laughs> you know, and it, it's an anti-corruption drive is, is pretty much part of the standard kit if you're an incoming party leader in China, um, because your predecessor will have planted his people um, and you want to get rid of them because you want your own people. And because it's a bit like the mafia, when, you know, if someone in the mafia is arrested, you don't ask if they were a criminal because <clears throat> they're in the mafia, right? So you ask, how did they lose their protection? And that's the question you ask in China. If a senior official is arrested in China for corruption, or as they would put it, um, serious um, violations of discipline, disappears for months on end, appears at a 10 minute trial and is, is sentenced to jail, again, You don't ask, was he corrupt, because he's in the Communist Party. It's very difficult when an organization is corrupt to advance if you don't participate. So you ask, how did he lose his protection? Which faction was he in? One of the more worrying things about Xi Jinping is that more than 10 years into his regime, he is still purging the ranks. He's still purging the security services and the army. And um, less so in business, but sometimes sometimes also business. Ten years in, if you're still purging the security services, either someone is really plotting against you, or you're becoming increasingly paranoid. Um, it's impossible to tell which it is. But it's not particularly reassuring news.
0: Just to, to veer off for a second, you started your interest in China goes back to being an undergraduate. How did how did that happen? I mean, you you were we we started university at roughly the same time. You were in Edinburgh. I don't imagine that China in nineteen whenever it was. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, look, it it was. Were you waving the little red book and thinking, <laughs> "I want to know more about Mao," and, and you know, like some some of my undergraduate friends? I I or how did this interest come to you?
1: Well, I may never have revealed this to you, but it actually started in Cincinnati, Ohio. Before I went to university, <laughs> I was um, I was brought up in a village in Aberdeenshire, where if you were a girl in those days, back in the, you know, late 18th century. And you were good at languages, which I was. You were told to learn more languages because you'd get a better secretarial job. Um, that's what you were expected to do before you married. Or even if you rose to giddy heights, you might become an Air hostess. So I learned more languages. I was, you know, I liked languages. And then I had a scholarship to the states um, between school and university, and I ended up in Cincinnati, Ohio. And with apologies to anyone from Cincinnati, I was a little bored. And um, so I thought, how can I get through the year? Um, there was a teacher at the at the high school who was a polyglot who had some language some Chinese language textbooks. And I borrowed those Chinese language textbooks. And uh, and he was, you know, encouraging. So I started teaching myself Chinese for a year, didn't get that far. But when I got back to Edinburgh, they had just started a Chinese department. So I jumped in. So it was language and culture that, that started me off in my interest in China. Uh, I couldn't imagine what a non-alphabetic Non-European language was like I couldn't imagine how it worked, and one way to you know answer that question is to learn it. Um, in in perhaps the most mistimed bit of uh, studying abroad, I then went to when it became possible. I went to university in China for two years to study <laughs> literature, which had pretty much all been banned. You know, it was the Cultural Revolution, <laughs> and so I spent a rather painful two years learning about. Madame Mao's model opera and her literary theory, and and had a rather better time working in factories and working on communes, which was also part of student life at the time, because as I say, it was the Cultural Revolution. So it was a very interesting time. And in answer to your question about Mao, I think it it absolutely inoculated me against ideology for life. I have never ever (laughs) felt comfortable with any ideology that proclaims itself infallible. And that was a very useful thing, I think.
0: When I first moved to Britain in the mid eighties, I knew your byline from Latin America. You veered away from China for a while and used to report from Chile, if, if I remember correctly. I, I
1: did. Well, yes, there weren't any jobs in Chinese. You know, if you think about it, China, China, the the economy was smaller than Belgium's. It was it was closed off. Um, you could join the foreign office, um, which which was difficult for personal reasons, because, you know, being a, again, being a woman um, and, and or you that was pretty much it. Um, there were about five correspondents in China. Reuters, uh, Telegraph, Times had correspondents. But it's hard. It's quite hard to remember now that China's everywhere, how very shut away it was. So I became a journalist. Um, but because of of all those early languages I, there were other choices and um and the Falklands War happened and I was relatively junior pond life on the Sunday Times but I did speak Spanish so I was sent off to Uruguay to intercept anyone coming off the islands who might arrive at the port of Montevideo um and when uh, Simon Winchester who was the you know the the main cor- correspondent covering the Falklands War from Buenos Aires got himself arrested along with two colleagues eh, from the Observer and I was then dispatched to the world's most southerly courthouse actually in in Ushuaia and Tierra del Fuego to try to get these guys out of jail um and um which I, I I did my best I did get them out of jail but not for three months and in that three months I then had to cover the war uh, from the Buenos Aires end of the war. And all of this, you know, it was my first experience of Latin America. And I thought this is kind of an interesting place. And so I went on covering Latin America for eight or nine years, first for the Sunday Times and then for the Independent when it started. But I always kept an interest in China and I would go back to China when I could. Uh, And as China, you know, changed in the 80s, that became both more possible and more interesting and so i've i've kept you know i have kept my my links and my language and my interest um despite these diversions and now of course china's all over latin america too so you know Mm. it's quite helpful
0: it's interesting skeptical is the wrong word but you you have some sense of wariness about china in the world at the moment and where chinese society is going but was there a time in in these last decades when you were able to finally get back to being a full-time China person where you thought this is going well, this could be interesting. this is a actually quite a positive development almost.
1: Uh, I think there were lots of moments uh, you know when I when I lived in China as a student, you felt like a, a bit like a zoo animal because there had been so few foreigners in China for years. And huge crowds would gather and just you know, look at you and discuss you and, you know, go over ev- everything you were wearing and the size of your nose or whatever it was. And they were very shocked when, if you understood what they were saying <laughs> and then got embarrassed. So you fast forward, you know, through Deng Xiaoping's opening and it was, you know, very normal to be a foreigner in China and possible to make friends. And it was a kind of huge discovery of Of Chinese society, of public intellectuals, of private intellectuals, of of interesting officials doing their best, of of businessmen trying to make a living, of migrant workers. I mean, there's just the richness of society and the vitality, actually, despite, you know, it was always a, a totalitarian state, but the degrees of control varied enormously and always did in China. And so you you got it was there were, there were times when it was absolutely um fine to live in China, to pretty much travel where you like, to talk to who you like. And there was a sense of optimism. You know, I would I would say in the early years of the century, the first decade particularly of this century, which a lot of China people now look back on as a kind of golden era of possibility, where there had been two decades of very rapid growth already, and there were environmental problems, but people were much better off. And the first time, you know, for, for decades, that each generation had had markedly more possibility and material wealth than the one that preceded it. So, you know, that that brings a sense of optimism and possibility to society, and it was very tolerant. So it had got over, sort of got over Tiananmen. Um, All kinds of religious practices were thriving. Civil society was really thriving. So the environmental movement had grown. And there were people in the administration who were looking for support from civil society and indeed from from the media uh, to try to fight back against um, big industrial powers who were destroying lakes and waterways and that kind of thing. So it was just a society with a sense of possibility. And I, I remember when uh, we're coming to the end of the era of Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao, that power transition. And I remember being at an event in Beijing where a, it was an economist event, I think, or a financial Times. So so on the platform, there were a lot of business people who were asked what they expected of the incoming Regime, and they all said political reform, and they meant, you know, uh, they meant a greater democratization, more of a rule of law, all of those things, greater representation, greater autonomy in your own life, and that was the feeling. So, you know, when we look at what Xi Jinping has done in the last, well, since he came to power in in 2012. He's moved it all backwards um, back towards party control, back to a reimposition of ideology, uh, including nationalist ideology, but also um, but also the party ideology. And people are not particularly happy about this. I mean, some people will uh, sign up to it, some people will profit from it. but a lot of people really are uncomfortable with it. And, you know, it, it, they're right to be, because I think, you know, it'll, it won't it will end very well. It's a bit of a one-way street. It's certainly having an effect on China's relations with the outside world. And if it goes too far, we might well see armed conflict. So, you know, it's not a great
0: direction to choose. Okay. I'll come back to the armed conflict, because that's the other reason China's always in, in the headlines. But I just wanted to tell you, my one and only trip was exactly 10 years ago in 2013. And I was I was making a program for BBC Radio Three about the near simultaneous origins of Greek philosophy, Buddhism, and Confucianism in a, in a hundred year period across the Asian landmass. Was it just a coincidence? I asked, or was there were there connections? And oddly, there, 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 the possibility of trading connections to spread ideas existed even then in. Mm you know, between 583 B.C. and 475. And I wanted to go to Confucius' birthplace in Chufu. And I met a, an intellectual named Du Wei Ming, who used to teach at Harvard and is now at Peking University. And he said, well, I, you must talk to my friend in Jinan. And he set me up with this remarkable guy who ran the only Jewish studies program in China and I thought, well, this is interesting. And I met him, and he was a a lovely guy, and his English was pretty good. And this was, you know, 10 years ago, just after, I guess, he took power. And there was a sense of openness and confidence that I met there. And he told me his life story, and this is why I've gone off on this ramble. So here's a guy, he's exactly our age. So he grew up in in a mudwooled peasant village, lived through the great Leap Forward and his people survived. He was not clearly not a victim and he had he told me he had quite happy memories of being seven or eight years old and so on. Bright man and had been accepted to university, but it was 1968. and the, so then you have the people waving, waving their red books and yeah. universities were shut down. So he was put to work in a factory. That might have been the end, except that when the liberalization happened in the end of the 1970s, he took up his place. Read philosophy, got interested in Spinoza, did graduate work in Spinoza. And I asked him, do you know Latin? And he said, yeah, I learned Latin. And, you know, he's like the opposite of you. He picked up all of these languages that you wouldn't expect. And he was actually translating the Talmud into Chinese. Anyway, he drove me to the railway station the day we left. And um, by now we had become quite friendly. He picks me up in a brand new Mazda, and I know how much a Mazda costs. It's a good car. And I said to him, This is a nice car. Because you know, this is the way men speak to each other. Nice car, you know. <laughs> how you know, how big is the engine, that kind of thing. And he said, No, it's not my car, it's my daughter's. I said, Really? He said, yes, I gave it to her for her wedding last year, and my wife has our car today, and I had promised to take you to the train station. And I you know, I just thought, this is a man my age who grew up in a mud-walled village who was able to, you know, a, a year or two ago, afford to buy his daughter an extremely pricey Japanese car. Maybe it was manufactured in, in China, I don't know. And... I thought to myself, this is a life trajectory that I just can't wrap my head around. And I do wonder if in China, the power of those stories multiplied because I don't think he, I mean, he may be unique in terms of ending up in a philosophy department at a university, but in terms of where people begin and where they've ended up and they look at their grandchildren and say, look at where they are. If the party says don't, they might be inclined to wait the party out, and hope that the next party leader will say do. Is that is that a dynamic in the society right now?
1: But the dynamics of of that kind of thing are pretty complicated right now because you're absolutely right. At that time, that was you I mean you you could meet any number of people who, you know, who who had, perhaps not translated the Talmud. That's a, an unusual <laughs> twist. But that, you know, ranks to riches story was not unusual, mm-hmm. um, and you and the speed at which China was growing, you know, was what fed that. That could, plugged into a great era of globalization. Everyone moved; to, all the factories moved to China, etc. Familiar story. But if you look at China now, you know, or if you look at any of the other Asian tigers who essentially followed that route, South Korea um you know japan they 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 all did the same thing taiwan there comes a point where that catch up phase which depends on moving people off the land on cheap labor all the advantages that you have in the initial phase you know they 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 fade out over time usually 20 25 years if you're lucky so now china has um A declining and aging population as opposed to the young population it had when this began and growth is no longer in double figures it's it's down to maybe five percent we don't because of the covid it's a bit it's, it's a little peculiar at the moment but it's not high and it's it's um disproportionately driven by the methodology of the first 20 or 30 years which was pouring concrete build infrastructure, borrow and build, you know, so apartments, um, airports, railways, roads, and, you know, in the first, again, in the opening phase, in the opening up phase, that produces returns. As it goes on, it doesn't produce returns. So you get to the point, as Japan did, for example, in the 90s, where you have an aging population, and you are overbuilt in infrastructure, and your return on investment is you know, pretty negative, And that's where China is. So, what China's trying to do, what the government is trying to do, is to switch from that kind of uh, unrewarding investment to a more consumer uh, driven society. But the share of household income in China uh, is very low. Um, so, that is troublesome. So, instead of that great optimism of the daughter having the Mazda for the wedding present, you have a 20% unemployment or among young people in China. You have graduates doing deliveries because they can't get jobs. You have a lot of migrant workers who've just gone back to the countryside where there isn't really any, any work. Um, and you've got a lot of you know, uncertainty and anxiety about the economy. It's not really responding to the kind of uh, levers that China is trying to apply. Foreign investment, which was another huge um, stimulus and asset in the early years, is pretty wary right now, partly because of the national security clampdown that we've been talking about, but also because of the general trend of anxiety about China flexing its economic muscles for other in pursuit of other goals. So there's you know decoupling or de-risking or whatever you call it. there's a lot of anxiety about piling into China though the size of the market continues to be um, a compelling attraction. But it's a a time, it's not that kind of glorious morning that you saw anymore. Mm. It's much more of a cloudy afternoon and not quite sure what's coming next.
0: Well, that that, that sounds like a prescription for foreign adventures and going to war. So this brings us to that question about Taiwan. First of all, is all the saber-rattling that we read about, concerning taiwan anything more than hot air as of today do you think
1: um there's quite a lot of hot air um because it's it's a kind of it's part of maintaining the party's image at home so a lot of the wolf warrior diplomacy a lot of the kind of nonsense that you get from chinese diplomats for example is really playing to the gallery back back home and a lot of the taiwan um saber rattling is doing the same thing that said there is a serious military element to these maneuvers, you know, the constant incursions into, into Taiwan's air defense identification zone means that the Taiwan Air Force has to scramble, it has to, you know, respond, it's exhausting and expensive, you know, testing of missiles, you know, that's all real stuff. An invasion would be pretty visible long before it happened. You know, you 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 need an awful lot of people to get across the Taiwan Straits and even think of, you know, an, a resisted landing on Taiwan. Now, what we don't know is, is what Xi Jinping's risk appetite is. But the risk of an, an, an adventure in Taiwan is far greater than Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Because if you were a military planner, think about it in order to be sure that you wouldn't be annihilated. Um, And the the balance of forces is still probably on the United States side. You would have to take out American assets in the region very early. That would mean attacking Japan and South Korea. And then you're immediately into a wider war in the Pacific. Now amongst Taiwan's many assets, apart from its rather well-functioning political and economic systems, is the world's most important uh, manufacturer of advanced computer chips, a company called TSMC. Uh, we all depend on TSMC. It's just way ahead of anybody else. China depends on TSMC. It's very unlikely that TM- TSMC's production would you know, survive a war. It, it, it's at least a very, very high risk. So when you think of the risks it's of of a military action, You know, these are really not negligible. And if Xi Jinping is remotely well informed about them, he would certainly think twice. My feeling about Taiwan is that, yes, he wants to be the man who, as he would put it, recovers Taiwan. Uh, Because, you know, if you want to be a big figure in history, what else is there in, in Chinese history that, you know, remains to be done, apart from becoming the world's biggest economy and et cetera, et cetera. But Taiwan is the kind of prize. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to invade militarily, because if you think of what China did in the South China Sea, essentially it militarized the South China Sea without, you know, while saying it wasn't, it wouldn't, without a shot being fired by this kind of stealth um, action, which always fell just short of of triggering a military response. And, And it worked. And China has an awful lot of options in in the grey zone, as they call it, in military terms, to put pressure on Taiwan. There's an election coming up in Taiwan early next year. If I were China, and if 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 China isn't you know hasn't papered Taiwan in spies and special agents, then they haven't really been trying. I would be trying to influence that election and get the Kuomintang back in power. We saw the first visit of a senior Kuomintang figure to China earlier this year. You know you can see the uh, you can see the elements you squeeze Taiwan, you demoralize the people and then you make them a nice offer saying, look, you know, just you can sign on here, we won't interfere we won't we won't change anything in Taiwan. you'll just you know be back part of the great uh, the great family. The problem with that is Hong Kong. Because that, after all, was the deal with Hong Kong. One country, two systems, no change in Hong Kong in 50 years. And the national security law just shattered all that. So the people of Taiwan are reluctant to believe the promise of one country, two systems again. But if you wear them down long enough and offer what looks like an enticing reward, you might get what you want without invading. And invading is just a massive risk and would commit you to a war of attrition and occupation for an indefinite period
0: mm. yeah, the other thing from that trip that i took 10 years ago is i was walking in in the hutong area behind the forbidden city looking for some place to eat and like most lonely middle-aged travelers I I looked through the window of a restaurant and saw people my age who were, who looked like they'd just come from a day's work. And I thought, this is my kind of place. Just a bunch of single people in their 60s. And I, um, (laughs) they were, and I, and, you know, so I walked in and it was a Taiwan cuisine restaurant. And I, what I I learned was that Taiwan, there there was plenty of contact between Taiwan and the PRC and that Taiwan culture seemed to be having a moment. Actually, certainly cu- cuisine-wise, oh, the cuisine from Taiwan is much better than the ordinary cuisine in in Beijing, which wasn't that good. Actually, I have to say I was very disappointed with Chinese food in China. Yeah. But yeah. A- anyway, I, I want to bring this to a, to a close because you've been very generous. But and this may be too big a question to bring it to a close with. But I'm going to ask anyway. One of the things that I noticed most about China was that everyone dressed and looked Western. I mean, Western culture had come to so dominate the street. Now, I went to China after spending a week and a half in India, where people still dress in traditional dress, where, you know, it's it's an enormous, complicated country, and, and, and I felt I was in a foreign place. When I was in China, I felt I was in... New York, but on steroids, and all of the signs were in Chinese, which created in me an almost schizophrenic, since I don't read Chinese. And I'm still trying to puzzle out what this does to a society. The students dressed like American students in the streets. everybody was dressed like an American. and it was just weird. And it felt to me like people had been unmoored from their traditional culture. And I wonder if that affects a society. If your your impression is that there is a kind of not sure of what our culture is, because there is the nationalist element. But when I think of nationalism, I think also of the cultural element and people wearing traditional dress, and you know, and that seemed to be absent, at least in the cities
1: such an interesting question um and i as you were talking i was thinking where do you see um traditional dress do you see it on the opera stage um you see it in uh, period movies and you see it in weddings actually um still uh, not every wedding but quite a lot of weddings are again entirely western with the bride in white with a veil and the and the groom in in um in in a morning suit so but the, you do get one or two, whereas in Taiwan you get far more actually of traditional Chinese dress. But I think this you know in on mainland china this is this goes back to the question of or, or what it is to be modern, what modernity is, and for most of the twentieth century, for all China's proclamation of its age-old civilization, all the big ideas were Western. You know the culture was heavily influenced. The literature was heavily influenced by the West. One of the big hits in in early twentieth century China in the theatre was uh was Nora the the Ibsen's um Ibsen's play, but um the Doll's House. Uh, yeah, yes, exactly, the Doll's House. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> you had. Uh, a marxist regime banning foreign ideas in universities you think okay <laughs> one brave professor did say does that include karl marx you know so so there has been a confusion in china about, about about westernization and modernization and and that went pretty deep one of the aspects of xi jinping's kind of retooling of chinese thought is to um is to invoke traditional culture, unlike Mao Zedong, who, as we remember, attacked Confucius, as did former intellectuals, um, early intellectuals in the Republican period also attacked Confucius because they saw the whole Confucius system as the, they saw in that the explanation for China's backwardness. So Confucius was out. Mao Zedong attacked Confucius because, you know, he was an iconoclast who was always trying to tear up the... Um, Traditional culture, Cultural Revolution, attacking the four olds in one culture was one of them. Whereas Xi Jinping is trying to establish a kind of story of exceptionalism, which rests on the claim to a continuous civilization, which goes back five thousand years. Well, you know, I we could maybe devote another podcast to why <laughs> to to the to the the problems with that theory. But yeah, okay, um, that's what he's invoking. Um, But as you say, it doesn't include dressing differently Um, or, or, you know, Western movies, Western literature, Western music. They've all had an enormous influence on China. And we'll see. Uh, There is uh, now a Chinese movie industry, severe restrictions on, on the number of foreign films that can be played in China. And maybe you will now see the emergence of a kind of modern version of a Chinese culture. Certainly, the regime argues, but this is part of its kind of diplomatic push, its push for influence in the world, that you don't have to be westernized to be modernized. Uh, Look at China, they say, we did it. Well, up to a point. But there is, as you say, a recovery of culture um, necessary, if that claim is to be credible. So we'll see.
0: Well, maybe there is another podcast. You've been very, very, <laughs> gen- maybe you've been very generous, Isabel. I really appreciate your time, so thank you very much.
1: It's been a real pleasure, Michael. Thank you for thank you for having me. Thank you for the conversation.
0: I think I really will have to ask Isabel Hilton back because now I have even more questions for her. But that's all for this FRDH podcast. Remember to visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation please to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.